So there are some hard texts and topics in the Bible. I don't know if you're aware of this. And given the tenor of our current age, the text that we find ourselves in this morning as we preach through Romans is probably one of the most challenging of them. And we get to look at it. You know, I've said before and will probably say again, that's actually part of why I think there's great value in just preaching through books of the Bible as we've done, you know, since I've been here. Um, Because we should treat the whole Bible as God's word and not just the easy parts or the parts that don't disrupt our lives, right? I believe that, but I say that and then I look at the text that we're preaching on this morning as we work on preaching through Romans and I think, yeah, right, why are we doing this again? So there's a lot of stuff um, to say about this text, but before that, I want to just say a couple of things about being a pastor that I reflected on as I thought to prepare this morning. Um, So there's a lot of stuff that goes into being a pastor, right? And some of that, like it's all important, but at the end of the day, I don't think that there's a big chunk of it that I don't think God cares that much about. I don't think come judgment day when I sit down with my creator that I'm going to have to give an accounting of how I ran session meetings or how many praise songs we did on a Sunday with communion or things like that. But the scripture does teach as a minister of a gospel that there are certain things that I will have to give an accountant for in a a special way, right? Thinking about scripture, it really boils down to did I pray for the people that the Lord entrusted me with and did I love and care for them? And did I tell them the truth? In scripture, that's probably actually the central one. And not the truth in the sense of my opinions and thoughts about things. But the truth is in, did I seek to proclaim God's word? God's truth. And I say that because this place where I'm standing right now and this thing that we're doing, it's easy to kind of just make it a habit, but there's something powerful about that. That when, when I purport to preach God's word... I am, in a sense, standing in his place and seeking to say what he says to his people, and that means that there are profound implications for what I do and don't say on any given topic. I have watched pastors stand up in the pulpit and spout off for 30 minutes about their thoughts and opinions about life and politics and morality and whatever, and they make no distinction between what scripture teaches and what popped into their heads on the toilet that morning. And I'm scared for them and scared for myself because this is a place where I am constrained to speak God's words and do my best not to add to or subtract from them, period. I am both a sinner and imperfect and I can get that wrong, but um, my job is to do everything in my power to say what God says and no more and no less. And I say all of that because we're going to talk about some really controversial issues this morning. To be honest, thinking through what we're going to say, I feel like basically everybody is going to be frustrated or offended by some part of what gets said this morning. And because of that, I want to ask two things of us. The first is that you should treat me as someone trying to do what I just said. I mess up just like anyone. And that's true, but I've also spent hours sorting through what to say this morning. And the question over and over I've come back to is, you know, what what is God's truth? What does his word say? And am I saying no more and no less than that? Because to be honest, if I got to ditch God's word at several points this morning, I probably wouldn't be saying the things I said. And I feel that way, especially if you're a visitor this morning, because I say that and I'm relying on a relationship that we've had over the last year built, you know, with you guys, that while, again, I'm a sinner and imperfect at it, I have sought to do that. 
Um, but I know we don't have that relationship, and that relationship's especially helpful when we have hard t- texts. And no, if you're a visitor, I promise this isn't how I typically start a sermon at Kish or how heavy a typical sermon is. Usually I, like, sing a song from Frozen or something. <laughs> um, that's part of what I'd ask of you this morning. And then the other part is that I'd ask that you seek to do the same thing. There's this really American thing that we can do with the Bible where we treat it like a buffet, a bunch of different ideas where we adopt the ones we like and avoid the ones that we don't, right? A little peace and love and understanding, but I'm going to skip this part over here. I mean, that's what Thomas Jefferson did, right? I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but that is the Jefferson Bible where he went through and exacted all of the parts that agreed with the Enlightenment and put them together in his own kind of version um, and got rid of the other parts. That idea... That world, our world is full of that attitude, right? And that's appealing to us, but that's not, I mean, so that's not Christianity. And really, that's not any religion. If what determines what God's word says is what I already agree with, then I have de facto kind of created a world in which the God is me, right? Where if I, if I take only the parts of scripture I like and treat them as God's word, then when I say, thus says the Lord... What I mean is, thus says the Lord, insofar as he is in agreement with Eric. All of which is to say, today we're going to talk about the Bible and sexuality and homosexuality. That's what our text addresses, and so we're going to do our best to say what the Bible says. Would you pray with me now as we go into that? Lord, I feel my own insufficiency and a million tensions and insecurities as we try to talk about your word on this topic. So I pray that you would just confront us all with yourself, that we might be in your presence and wrestling with what you say. Be with all of us sinners as we have to wrestle with your word in our own ways. Be with me a sinner as I preach it. Amen. So here's what we're going to do, all right? Paul uses those issues we mentioned, sexuality and particularly homosexuality, as examples of this larger idea that he's discussing. But the issue is, I don't know that, especially in our time and place, we can discuss the kind of larger idea without discussing those specific examples he gives. So we're actually going to preach sort of twice through this text. This Sunday, we're going to look at these four verses, and we're going to talk about the the kind of controversial stuff, right, about sex and homosexuality and those things. And then next week, we're going to take the two verses before and the four after and these verses as a whole and try to talk about kind of the larger thing that Paul's getting at. Because while, they're an ex- while these topics are an example here, he's dealing with larger issues of idolatry and sin. All right? And so this morning, we're going to basically do four things then in light of that. First, we're going to offer a few general principles that apply to all of Christianity Then we're going to make a few observations about how the Bible views sex and sexuality generally. Then we're going to talk about homosexuality. And last, we're going to say a couple of things that we need to bear in our hearts in all of this. So first, general principles, all right? There are three things we need that that I feel like need to be said before we talk about sexuality at all. And the first is that all human beings have dignity and deserve respect. All human beings have dignity and deserve respect. 1 Peter 2.17 puts it simply, honor everyone, treat everyone with honor. The reality is that when we talk about a lot of moral issues, but especially sex and sexuality, and especially homosexuality, we're entering into a realm where people have been enormously hurt. There is shaming and bullying and parents disowning kids and mocking and discrimination and cruelty. People like us who claim the same Savior as us have done those things. 
And it is simply never acceptable for God's people to do that. There are times when many of us have stayed silent when people in all different groups, including the LGBTQ community, have suffered and we have not said anything out of partisan loyalty or fear of some gay agenda or whatever, and that's wrong. And we need to own that before we say anything about sex and sexuality, all right? In terms of treating people with honor and respect and dignity, of loving them and, um, and looking on them you know, as, as beautiful, wonderful human beings, all of that comes before anything else we say about any moral issue. And we need to repent of the ways that we fail to do that. A second general principle. We need to realize that obedience is for Christians, which might raise your eyebrows a little, but obedience is for Christians, which is not to say that we aren't all called to obey God. Part of what Paul's saying in Romans 1 is that we're all accountable for our disobedience, but it is to say that um, what we, we should not expect people who aren't Christians to live like they're Christians, right? They need Jesus, not moral reform. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes the church in Corinth and um, So one of its members is sleeping with his stepmother. That's the best case scenario. It says his father's wife. And Paul tells them to expel them from the church. And all of that's another sermon (laughs) that we're not preaching today. But then Paul says this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Christians are often guilty of doing the exact opposite of what Paul says in this text. We attack the immorality in the world, preaching long sermons against society's ills, while avoiding the immorality in the church. And that is called hypocrisy, and Paul has some strong words for that in Romans chapter 2. When we discuss sexuality, our goal should not be to comment on society. Of course, Paul would say, they're living like not Christians. Because they're not Christians, what did you expect? Let me say something specific about what that means this morning. It is common to conflate discussions of homosexuality in scripture with discussions of gay marriage in America. And um, that is an issue that Christians and Americans can and should discuss and debate and be respectful of each other about. I'm not saying that's not a worthwhile topic to discuss, but we are not talking about gay marriage in America this morning, all right? There is a lot of other things that would need to enter into the conversation for us to have that discussion. Not that it's wrong, but that um, I feel like it's actually a distraction from wrestling with what scripture says. So those are two principles. And then the third one is probably the hardest and simplest. Christianity should be costly. Christianity should be costly to all of us. Some of the things we're going to say this morning are not easy, but if our faith doesn't constantly challenge us, if it doesn't feel like taking up a cross, then we need to question whether we're following after Jesus who did. So those are general principles we need to keep in mind. That said, let's talk about sex, about human sexuality. To understand what the Bible says about sex and sexuality, first, probably, I think it's worth just noting, I feel like this is what what the culture says, what the world around us says. Not that we all agree with all of this, but that this kind of is the framework that many of us come to scripture in. Okay, first, our culture would say that sex is good. It's good. It's great. We celebrate sex in the modern world. Second, in our culture, sex is usually seen as meaningless 
or at least stripped of most meaning. Not everyone is here, right? But I feel like that's the direction that the world tends to push us, that it's just, it's just what animals do. It's just a biological drive. It's just satisfying some appetite, like eating or drinking. It doesn't mean anything. At the same time, in our culture, sex is essential. It's essential. It might not have any deep meaning, but to deprive yourself of it, that is wrong. <laughs> right? You are repressed. You, you are only like sick or stifled people would deprive their sexual impulses. And there's a contradiction there already, of course, right? That sex is both, you know, meaningless and the most important thing for you to do, but we'll come back to that. Our last cultural assumption is that sex is private. It's private. It's nobody's business but my own and my partner's. As long as it's all consensual, everyone else should just leave me alone. So that's the cultural context. Again, not everyone believes all of that, right? Each of us as individuals is a complicated set of like those pressures and our own histories and backgrounds and our consciences and our religious beliefs. But that's a direction we're kind of being pulled. And here's what Christianity teaches. First, it would say that sex is good. Sex is good. (laughs) I know that sounds strange to some of you to hear a preacher from the pulpit say, but we should agree with that, right? There is this sense that many Christians have that our sexuality is somehow dirty or inappropriate. And we got that from Plato and from Queen Victoria and from some medieval monks, but we did not get that from the Bible. God made sex, and he made it to be pleasurable, and he made it so that the human race would cease to exist unless it didn't happen quite a bit. While it is respectful, the Bible actually celebrates sex. There's this book, The Song of Songs, or The Song of Solomon, And it's in the middle of the Bible, and it is an erotic love poem. I mean, look, in in, in the Song of Songs, this is just, this couple gets married, right? And then in chapter 4, the husband starts celebrating his, his, his wife's body, and he talks about her hair and her eyes and her lips and her cheeks, and then he keeps working down. Her neck is a pillar of David in verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. And then in verse 6, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. And do you know what that's about, right? God is fine with the fact that we are sexual creatures and he designed us that way. And we should not, even though we're going to push back against some other things in culture here in just a minute, We should never lose sight of that reality. One of the reasons, I think, that the church has been so ineffective in speaking about sexuality is because it communicates that it is bad, and that is not what God says. That said, instead of being meaningless, Scripture views sex as powerful. It is one of the most powerful things Christians and people can do. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6.19, he famously talks about our body being a temple of God. And people use that verse to talk about like eating healthy and exercising, which are good things to do. But it's not what that verse is about. In verse 18, he explains what he's talking about. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That is, that there is something unique and intimate and personal about our sex and sexuality. It's tied up with our identity and our relationships and our sense of place in the world. That is why it is so painful when people have this part of themselves um, abused, right, or taken advantage of, and why people who do that are doing something despicable. Sexual interaction is, in Scripture, probably the most powerful way that two human beings can interact with each other. And that's why it draws boundaries around sex. 
not to deny a good thing, but to protect and channel the power that that interaction has. We sometimes talk about sex belonging within marriage in scripture as if that's an arbitrary rule, like you should, you know, like telling our kids that you can only eat in the kitchen or something. But, um, but the reality is that in scripture, the covenant promises that are meant to bind us in marriage are also meant to be the only thing strong enough to handle the power of sexual interaction. So it's powerful. And at the same time, scripture also argues that sex is relative, that it is relative, not essential. That as good and powerful as it is, it is not the only or the most important part of our human existence. In our passage this morning, Paul talks about people pursuing sexual immorality, and he says the underlying reason is that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So in scripture, the truly ultimate thing in this universe is God, right? Knowing and living with him. And all sin, really, which is part of what we'll talk about next week, all sin is taking him out of that central place and putting something else there as the most essential thing. And so while our sexuality is good and powerful, God is infinitely greater. When the two conflict, God should win. And while there is a cost to giving up some sexual fulfillment, that cost is far less than the cost of giving up God and putting something else in the center. That if you have God, you do have the thing that most deeply matters and that you can live a full and happy and meaningful life and never be fulfilled in the area of your sexuality. I mean, Jesus did that. Lastly, Scripture teaches that sex is relational. It's not private, but relational. That sex affects other human beings. In the first place, it affects the people, right, involved in having sex with each other. That, that the per, a person can actually be built up or torn down based on what happens behind those closed doors, right? I mean, we all, we all kind of understand that in an intuitive level, that, 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 that something that is selfless and serving of another person in that area can bless and build someone up, and that something that isn't can tear them down and hurt them. And that can spill over into the rest of the world and spread ripples out into the world. I mean, I remember a girl I knew in college, right, who was this this wonderful girl and, you know, beautiful and really smart, but who was incredibly, like, cut off from the world and shy. And as um, a couple of us got to know her, what came out was that it was because she had just come out of this long relationship with this guy where she had kind of been used, right, sexually, and then abandoned and had those things broken. And because of that, she had cut herself off from relationship with others. And here's the thing, that didn't just hurt her. It also hurt all of the people that could have known her and been blessed by her and enjoyed her presence who didn't get to because she had been used in that way. In scripture, while sex is private in a very immediate sense, it is not in the larger one. It is part of our relational and even public lives. It affects other people. I mean, it it makes babies, right? There's nothing more public and relational than creating other human beings. And it's connected with our relationship with God. One of the things that strikes me is that people will say, I don't understand how God could possibly care about something as inconsequential as who I sleep with. And then in the very next say, I couldn't possibly believe in a God who tells me I can't sleep with that person which is really insane when you reflect on those statements, right? Because he's saying that God couldn't possibly care about this thing that I care the most about. <laughs> if God has, designed, has a design for us in our lives, then of course it involves something as important and central and human as our sexuality. And that in a basic way is what scripture says about sexuality. 
There's a lot more that could be said. But I want to leave it there for now, since we have a lot of ground to cover. But here's why that matters for us this morning. So Paul, in this text, uses homosexual sex as an example of sexual sin. That is spoilers. We're going to get there, and there's a lot of things that are going to be said around that, okay? But what's important right now, I say that up front because it's one example. The church in America, Christians in America, have largely left those cultural assumptions we just talked about unchallenged when it comes to heterosexual sex. Not that we say that, you know, that sexual sin is all right, but we avoid saying anything or give it a wink and a nod. And at the same time, we, distru- we, we decry homosexuality and rail against the gay agenda and gay marriage from our pulpits, and that is wrong. If we don't have the courage to address heterosexual sin in our midst, we have no business talking about homosexuality. Which is not to say that we're not going to talk about homosexuality this morning. But it does mean that I feel duty-bound to say a few other things first. If you are having sex with anyone that isn't your spouse, or engaged in other ways sexually with them, even if it's not technically intercourse, you're living in sexual sin. In verse 24, when Paul says, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. That verse isn't about homosexuality. That's about all of us who make those choices. And that's not meant to be some sort of condemnation. Christianity is all about new beginnings. There was a point as a younger man that I was in that category. Before I knew Elizabeth, but um, where I was choosing to live in disobedience in these areas of my life. I am a sinner, and those and a million other sins are covered by the blood of Jesus, and the fact that you fit in that category doesn't mean that you're unlovable or less worthy or anything like that. But we need to understand something as we say all of that, right? So Christ's blood covers a multitude of sins. It makes us spotless and white, but we can't presume upon it if sin isn't something that we are repenting of and seeking to turn from. This is one of the great tensions in Christian obedience. God's grace covers our sin, but it is not a blank check to keep on sinning. Here's the distinction, all right? We all struggle with all sorts of sins, and that includes sexual sins. I mean, given that Jesus says that there's a real sense where even if just, you know, in your mind you entertain fantasies about those things, you are sinning in this way, many of us are still struggling with sexual sin. And God's grace, there's infinite forgiveness for those who struggle. But there's no promise of forgiveness for those who aren't struggling, who rather than struggling have made peace with sin chosen to celebrate it, who claim the name of Christ while insisting that they don't need to seek to repent and obey. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, I know this is all hard. That is a hard text, and those are hard words, right? And if you are the kind of person who constantly worries about your salvation and constantly is burdened under the guilt of sin, it's probably not aimed at you, all right? You can struggle and struggle and fall and struggle again, and you are not in this category of people. Jesus' blood covers you. But that is meant to stand against a warning to us to be tempted to say that sin is not sin, that it's no big deal. Because doing that in scripture is repeatedly said to be deeply dangerous to us. 
So here's the biblical calling for all of us. Chastity. We're called to chastity. That's an old-fashioned word. But what it means is that if you are married, you are seeking to be sexually faithful to your spouse. Seeking it in action and seeking it in thought. And if you're unmarried, it means seeking celibacy, which is another old-fashioned word, but it means denying your sexual desires in action and in thought, unless and until you're at a place where you've married someone, and instead retraining them on God. That is Scripture's calling for every human being. And that is a hard calling. And it is one that many of us, I mean all of us internally will fail at, and many of us at different points in our lives have or might fail at even externally. But we are called to pursue it, and not pursuing it is a dangerous thing. There's this essential divide between stumbling along, seeking after obedience, and strolling casually in the other direction. And we need to wrestle with where we are in that divide. So that was the easy stuff. Now, this is hard and heavy stuff, all right? For me as much as for anyone. I hope you hear that as we work through these things, that I, too, am a sinner sitting under God's word and wrestling with it. But with that said, let's talk about homosexuality in particular. So let's start with what I already referenced. The Bible views homosexual sex as sinful. I don't know any way that you can get around it as a specimen of the broader category of sexual immorality. So Romans 1, 26 and 27 from our passage this morning says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul is being pretty clear. There is a way that God willed that we behave sexually, and that involves men and women um, as two genders, and that if we are acting outside of that, including in homosexual sex, that's a violation of that will. The Old Testament law explicitly condemns homosexuality in several places. For instance, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. Of course, people dismiss this because there are commands in the Old Testament law that we as Christians don't follow, and that is true, but that's not a surprise to anyone. For the last 2,000 years, the church has insisted that there are ceremonial laws that are fulfilled in Christ, and that there are civil laws that have to do with the church-state nation of Israel, and that scripture itself says that those are abrogated in places like Acts 10 and the book of Galatians. But that if those things weren't, if, if, if Jesus hadn't fulfilled those things, those would still be binding on us, and that the other parts of the law, what Christians historically have called the moral law, that deals with things like the Ten Commandments, our calling to care for and love the poor and sojourner, and scripture's sexual regulations are a part of that moral law. The New Testament also addresses homosexuality in several places. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice um, homosexuality. He goes on to discuss other sins. And now notice, sexual immorality in general is being condemned there, right? It's not picking out only homosexuality as a single kind of particularly bad sin, but it is naming it as a sin. 1 Timothy 1 does the same thing. And some people make much of the fact that Jesus doesn't address the issue of homosexual sex, which is true. But pitting Jesus against the Bible in the first place is always a bad idea. We, we often talk as if the red letters are more authoritative and more God's word than the rest of this thing. But those red letters tell us that every word of scripture is inspired by God and authoritative for us. 
Jesus treats the Bible that way in places like Matthew 5. And more than that, while he doesn't discuss homosexual sex in particular, he does repeatedly condemn the broader category of sexual immorality. For example, from Mark 7, he went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, and he goes on and lists other sins. And in Jesus' day, when these Jewish audiences hear what he's saying, and when he says this, right, they would have understand. They would have understood that one part of that would be homosexual sex. And because it's hard to avoid, some people, um, it's hard, because it's hard to avoid that scripture seems to say that homosexual sex is sinful, there are some in the modern era who want to argue that yes, it condemns that, but it has in mind a particular thing. In the ancient world, men would rape other men as a display of power and domination. And um, that's like what happens in prisons still today, and that that's what's being condemned by these texts. And um, that the idea of loving, consensual, homosexual relationships just didn't exist in the ancient world, and so Paul couldn't be talking about that. And on the one hand, they're right that that sort of thing was a known thing in the ancient world to happen. Um, In fact, there are a few places in Scripture, notably Genesis 9 with Noah and his son, that might well be about that. But people who make that argument are wrong that the idea was the only thing known in the ancient world. Um, So Thomas K. Hubbard, right? Uh, The famous gay classicist, which is a thing in the academic world. Um, And I mean, again, like this is not a Christian guy, right? Wrote this 500-page book collecting all the different references to homosexuality in the ancient world. And um, in Greece and Rome, every love poem and discussion in Shard of Pottery. And he's very clear, and the documents are very clear, the people in Paul's world, just like ours, were familiar with all different kinds of homosexual relationships, including plenty that were romantic and committed and consensual and equal. Paul, when he wrote this, wasn't just thinking about rape. And honestly, even if you didn't go through 500 pages of classical texts, this text from Romans 1 makes that reading very challenging. Because Paul doesn't just talk about men, but also about women. And the thing that most of those people are talking about, which was you know, men raping other men as a display of power, was not something that um, was known or discussed for women. So scripture does teach that homosexual sex is sinful. But a couple other things need to be said. And the first and most important, and this will make the other group of you uncomfortable than the group that I know is just struggling, scripture does not condemn homosexual attraction condemns homosexual sex as sinful, not homosexual attraction. It does not say that being gay in that sense is a sin at all. Many Christians get uncomfortable with that distinction. But listen, all right, I have friends, guy friends who are attracted to other men and who are believers. In at least one case, they are attracted exclusively to other men, not to women, and has been for as long as he can remember and didn't come from a background of abuse or any of the things... (laughs) That, that people like to talk about. He didn't choose it, and he can't help it, and he is, in that sense, gay. And that shouldn't surprise Christians. Christianity has always taught that we don't live in a world that is as it is should be. We all have desires in our hearts for things that we shouldn't. We are all broken in significant ways ever since Adam and Eve sinned, and that brokenness is not itself sinful. It's just brokenness. So we need to be very careful about how we talk about this issue and about being gay. You will notice one of the things I sought to consistently do in everything I just said was say the phrase homosexual sex. And the reason for that is because both Christians and non-Christians often confuse those two things, being attracted to people and having sex with people. And that is actually a really problematic confusion. Those friends I mentioned, they are not acting on those desires. 
One of them never has, seeking to be obedient to Christ, and another one did for a former season of his life, but as he became a Christian, it stopped. And there is nothing shameful then in their acknowledging those desires that they feel and struggle with. In fact, the church should celebrate them, right? Like the, the fact that they have chosen to die to themselves in those ways, that's being like Jesus. And I know that raises a ton of questions for some of you, and we can't address all of them this morning. But let me note one important thing that I think goes along with it, and that is that that should make us very suspicious of Christians who claim that the Christian answer to people wrestling with those desires is to fix them. Um, There is a long and dark history of evangelicals pursuing dubious, at best, reparative therapies, and um, of parents shoving playboys into their hands of their sons in an attempt to somehow convince them to be straight through sin, and any number of other things that are insane and unbiblical and destructive. And so we might ask then, okay, so can people's desires change? Can God change people's desires? And absolutely, he can, right? But that does not mean that he will in this life. And it certainly doesn't mean that he will at some workshop or camp or through some human timing. Look, I should not desire sin, right? Do you realize that? I desire sin all the time, and I shouldn't. That is part of the brokenness, the crookedness in my heart, the fact that, that I you know, have desires that don't conform to God's will. I don't expect that's going to change until glory, and so I ought not expect that that will change for people who struggle with this particular desire either. That said, that leads to another reality, and this is a hard one. The call to chastity will mean for people who have those desires that they won't be able to act on their attractions if they're following Christ. The call to chastity will mean not acting on that attraction. If all Christians are called to chastity, then for people who are gay, in the sense of attracted only to members of the same sex, that they will not be able to act on those desires. For most people who have those attractions, assuming it doesn't change, which it may well not, that may well mean that they don't get to act on those desires ever in their lives. I've known a few people who are gay believers who marry someone of the opposite sex because they have a personal connection with that person and are able to enjoy a sex life with them. But even then, it's because they love this person, not because they've sort of changed the way that their general desires work. And I can't dress that up. That is a really hard calling. But it leads to a third truth, and that is that that should call us all to that same sort of chastity. Like we said, it is the worst sort of hypocrisy to say what I just said to someone who is gay when we aren't committed to it in other areas. Look, those friends I mentioned, I have the deepest admiration for them. They are incredible people who are willing to acknowledge that they will probably never get to enjoy their sexuality in this life. And that is something that they are willing to lay down for Jesus. And so there are moments that I just feel angry when I see people in the church cavalierly dismissing their heterosexual sins in the face of that, acting like it's no big deal, because it's making a mockery of those friends' obedience. If they're willing to die to themselves in those ways for Jesus, then at the very least, we can seek to do the same. If they make those sorts of sacrifices for Christ, then we ought to take them as an example of holiness and seek to do the same. So that's Scripture's calling, and that is a hard one. Like I said, I feel like almost all of us, in some part or other of that, are going to struggle. But as we close, let me note two things I think we should take to heart as we wrestle with all those things. The first is that everything we just said requires community. 
All right, all of the stuff that we just said requires community. Not just, not just for brothers and sisters who are gay, right? And wrestling with homosexual desires. It's true for all of us, especially for all of us who are single. We're not designed to obey God's calling to sexual fidelity alone. We need each other. Chastity requires friendship. It's one thing, right, to call Christians who are unmarried to not have sex. That is a hard calling, but calling them to not have deep, meaningful friendships, too, kind of be outside of the community of faith, that is cruel and unbiblical. But sadly, I mean, really for for many single Christians, but especially for those who struggle with those desires, that can be the place that they find themselves. And so we need, especially, frankly, those of us who are married, need to be mindful of the fact that we need to seek to befriend and extend community and relationship to those who are single or who are widowed and particularly to those who might be struggling with this set of desires. Most of all, though, even more than community, we need to remember the gospel in all of this. We need to remember the gospel. The Apostle Paul elsewhere says it like this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Here's what that means when we have this discussion, or really any discussion. It means, first, that we need to own our own sin, first and foremost. Anytime that we talk about sin or focus on sins that aren't including us in them, we've missed the point, right? We've missed Jesus, because each of us needs to acknowledge the deep ways that we fail to disobey God anytime we talk about sin. It means that we need to commit ourselves to pursuing God's will to pursuing chastity in this area. It is one thing to be imperfect in that pursuit, right? There is great grace and forgiveness for that. But but not chasing it, Scripture warns us against that, like we said. And that is something that I fear sometimes for us. If we simply choose to live in unrepentant and open, you know, disobedience as Christians, we don't get the confidence of saying, oh yeah, we're, we're good with God. But if we're seeking to follow Jesus, even though we have failed, and even though we will fail... There is forgiveness and welcome for us over and over again. That's who Jesus came to die for, right? Not the righteous, but sinners repenting and seeking healing. God loves people like that, people like you and me. And in Jesus, if that is us, and it is me, right, then there is now no condemnation and no shame and no guilt and no rejection. You don't have to feel bad about those things in your past anymore. You don't have to hide from them or hide them. You are a child of God, and you stand in pure innocence before him, and he is delighted in you. That's the thing we most need to remind our hearts of in all of this, the good news of the gospel. So let's go with that good news and make it our hope. Oh, Father, I feel the weight of um, of all of this. Father, I just pray that you would be teaching us to follow after you, to trust in you, to seek to believe and obey your word. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, um, we recite together the words of the Apostles' Creed every month as we do it, reminding us of our faith in God and our hope in his salvation. Would you say those words with me? They're printed in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty.
So the stuff we've just been talking about, one of the reasons I feel a lot of weight talking about it is because I know that it is an area that many of us have things in our own paths that, um, that we have an enormous, feel an enormous amount of guilt and shame about. And here's, there's this, in, in, in many evangelical churches, what gets communicated to people is that you somehow have to make yourself worthy to come to the table. They talk about examining yourselves and reflecting on your sin and repenting and all of that stuff. And they say that you somehow have to make yourself worthy to come to the table. And that's wrong. It is true that if you were living in sort of like that category we talked about of just like, I'm not repentant of this sin, I'm living in it, I'm fine with it, you know, God can just suck it kind of attitude, you should refrain from the t- coming to the table at that point, simply because scripture does not offer you the confidence that it's for you. But if you are a person who has sinned in those areas and feels that grief and anguish, if you are a person who still struggles with sin in those areas and feels that grief in your heart, which is true repentance, then this table is absolutely for you. This table is, in fact, for sinners, not the righteous. One of the things that most breaks my heart in that it's communicated is that, like, what is embodied here is Jesus' body broken for our sin. Jesus' blood poured out to cleanse us. And the idea that that isn't for sinners is missing the point of it. So as we come to the table, as we acknowledge our sin and come to the table... Find hope in it, reminding yourself that as surely as you taste that bread, so surely has Jesus himself, God in the flesh, been sacrificed so that that sin doesn't have power over you any longer. And as surely as you taste that juice, remind yourself, so surely has the blood of Christ flowed so that it speaks atonement and innocence for all of us who are in it. And invite the elders to come forward as we prepare to receive this table and let's give thanks for it. Our God and Father, I thank you for the grace that you um, symbolize for us here. I thank you for the grace that you enacted for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would make it our hope and our plea. It's the only hope that we have. pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I received it, so I deliver it to you.